As we open up this That You May Believe series, we're going to start in a story in John chapter 4, and it begins like this. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now, he had to go through Samaria. Now, I want to stop because the beginning of this is so fascinating. And I, I want to dig into this at some point, these first couple of verses, about this idea that it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So let's hold on to that because there's a really fascinating piece there that we'll explore at some point. Uh, but we continue on and we see that so he left Judea because of this situation. Uh, because of the Pharisees and what they had seen and how the pressure they were doing. So we see that he left Judea. He went back once more to Galilee. Now listen to this. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the plot of ground that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Now, it's really fascinating here in John chapter 4 that we get this encounter that Jesus has with a Samaritan woman, or to put it another way, an encounter that a Samaritan woman had with Jesus. And at the end of this, I'm fascinated by this, that he puts this in parentheses here for us, or the translators put in parentheses, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. So this is a way of the author telling us about a reality that had taken place in the ancient culture that is going to inform this story and help us to understand it at a deeper level. So just this story alone, as people would have heard this story in the first century when it began to circulate, it, it would have been an alarming story that Jesus had even traveled through Samaria. Uh, we pick this up on this reality. He goes into Samaria, but we also pick this up on for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And the reason for this, is there was an animosity that existed between Jews and Samaritans. It had existed for generations. And there's all kinds of pieces that go into it um, that, that have to do with their history, that have to do with some, some ideas of, of um, just some discrimination, some, some fighting that had taken place, the idea of just different ways of worshiping, all kinds of different pieces that went between them. These people of shared cultural history who had developed and who had sort of separated into two distinct groups. And because of that, because of two distinct groups in close proximity, uh, they began to have these arguments and these fights and these these wars and all of this that was taking place, this incredible animosity to the point that this woman even says, how can you even be speaking to me? So we have to stop and recognize and see something incredible is taking place. Jesus here begins to ignore all of that animosity. He's ignoring all of that stuff that we saw happening between the Jews and the Samaritan. And in this story, once again, once again, we see, and I want, I want us to really 
um, realize this, that Jesus enters a situation, cultural context that had developed, a cultural construct that had developed between these two different people, an animosity that he was, he was, based on his heritage, supposed to lean into, based on the way he had grown up and how people acted and what, what was the cultural norm of the day in his, in his group of people. He was supposed to lean into that animosity. He shouldn't have talked to this woman. But Jesus shows us, as he begins to rip down some of these constructs down, as he begins to, to show us this, this, this idea that that kind of animosity is not to exist. And once again, we see Jesus widen the invitation of grace even wider. He continues to do this over and over and over again. As we like to talk about here at Southeast, it's good news for everyone because it's good news for anyone. And so this is, this is the point that he's making here, and it's good news for anyone as we turn that around. It's good news for anyone because it's good news for everyone. And that's what Jesus is telling you, widening the story of grace. So finding this woman at the well, Jesus began a conversation with her. And as we're going to see in this story, Jesus addressed shame in this story. Jesus addressed belief in this story. Jesus uh, gives an invitation and he talks about the reality of true life. Now, there's a couple things to point out here as we continue in this story. We recognize in, in the first couple verses here. This woman came to this well around noon. It's easy to, to just kind of read past some of this stuff, but this is a clue for us. This is a clue that this woman had a past. She has a story filled with shame. This would have been the hottest part of the day when she got there, meaning she had to wait about six hours till after the other villagers had already left the well. So this woman, normally who would have gone in the morning with everyone else to go get water at the well, waits until the hottest part of the day when everybody else has already gone back to the village. She comes out, she goes to the well, knowing that she would be alone. She was avoiding the other people. She was judged. She was seemingly unwanted by her community. So then we see that this is, this is what's so incredible about this story. This woman who is seemingly unwanted, who is judged by other people, who has so much shame that she waits until the very hottest part of the day to walk to this well, gets near the well, sees Jesus sitting there. Now, it's fascinating to me that she didn't just simply walk away that she didn't go hide and, and, and go into the trees to try to avoid him. She just continued to walk, and she went towards the well. I wonder what she was thinking. Maybe when she saw Jesus, she concluded, it didn't matter anymore how people looked at her. You know, what could this guy say that would be any worse than any of her neighbors did that judged her on a daily basis? She probably expected she'd receive an insult, she probably expected that he would say something um, just incredibly rude to her because that's, what, that's the expectation here. She knew he was a Jewish man. She, that, that animosity already existed. He would have been well aware of the context of the situation, recognizing this woman coming out in the middle of the day. He knew something was going on. And so it's just amazing to me. She said, I, I, I just don't care anymore. I'm just going to go get my water. 
And what's crazy here, what's so fascinating about this, is that if she expected to receive an insult, and instead she received a conversation that would change her life. And there's so much just from that one statement that I think is so powerful for us. How many people do we have encounters with in life where they're expecting an insult instead receive a conversation? How often does that happen to us? How often do we look at someone and automatically think insult instead of conversation? Just that alone for us is a huge learning piece that grace begins with conversations. It doesn't begin with the building of walls. It doesn't begin with insults. It doesn't begin by pushing people as far away from us as we can. It begins with embracing. It begins with conversations. It begins with curiosity. It begins with simple grace. And that's what Jesus begins with as he shows this woman this grace just by simply having a conversation. Now, let's go back to this, to John 4. Let's go back to, chapter, or to verse 7, and let's see what is said here. It says, When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Immediately, this conversation shifts, it changes. We can see that it is a strange and odd conversation. It, it begins so, uh, just so light, with just a simple, uh, just a simple question: Will you give me a drink? Now, as the woman begins, she she automatically turns and says, oh, "Wait a minute!" She objects to this. She says, well, how, "How can you even ask me for a drink?" Jesus, in this opening of discussion, automatically turns that and would say, listen, if you knew, if you knew who I was, if you knew this situation, if you knew what I was about to tell you about, you'd be asking me for a drink. I'd give you living water. Now, just this statement, just this key phrase, just at the very end, that he would have given living water, would have done a couple things. For the people reading the story later on, uh, th this would be uh, uh, just a flag that would jump up. Living water. We would heard that before. We would know what that is. Um, but for the woman as well, the idea of living water, she would have perked up. This would have changed things. She would have realized that Jesus was talking about something very different. And so what is that very different thing? What, what is living water, and why is this so significant? Well, in Samaria and Israel, water was found in several places. You, you found water in streams. You found water in the Dead Sea, which wasn't water you could drink. It was filled with salt water. Uh, then you had water like this that was found in wells. And then you had what was called living water. 
And, and living water was different. Living water was the unexpected rains that brought everything to life. And living water is such a different reality because when you're in a desert climate, when you're in a place where, where, where the rains come, so uh, become a significant part of your culture, where when rains come, everybody says, finally, some rains. Finally, we'll have some of this water that comes. And this living water brings everything to life. Now, we find a celebration of this living water in John chapter 7. And as we get there to the celebration of living water, we're going to find an even uh, more significant piece here. Not just the physical reality of living water, but the spiritual uh, context that it began to have. So let's turn to chapter 7. This is going to be just a couple uh, chapters later in this book. And as Jesus expands on it, he talks about living water here. He expands on it and he helps us understand exactly what he's talking about in this moment. So John 7 we're going to go to the very end of this chapter, 37 and 38, uh, to, the, to the point of this chapter where Jesus brings up this living water. He says this, or it says this, On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. So we come to the end of a week-long festival. And at that festival, Jesus began to shout these words, inviting anyone thirsty to come to him and drink. It's the very same thing that he said to this woman at the well, but with the background of this festival, we will see why this was such an incredible statement from Jesus. So I want to set the context again because I think this is so fascinating. We have, we have this festival taking place. We have all these crowds gathered together. And then in this moment, just out of nowhere, and you can see why Jesus got the reputation that he got. He stands up. And he just begins to yell and shout out above all the noise, all the celebration of the festival. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. You know, and everybody turns their heads or looking at Jesus. They're like, what is he saying? And then he says these lines, whoever believes in me. So there's our word believe. Whoever believes in me. Then he tags on to it as scripture has said. Rivers of living water will flow from within them. So now we listen to this with an expectation of who Jesus is. For some of us, we've been on this journey of our faith with Jesus, or some of us are just beginning. Uh, it's not as objectionable to hear a statement like this. But I want you to imagine the people in this moment hearing this man who had begun to teach, and he shouts this out, whoever believes in me. I mean, just the absolute audacity of that statement. Whoever believes in me. Can you imagine some of the people? Believes in you? Believes in you for what? Who do you think you are? You're just another person at this festival. He says, whoever believes in me. Then he says that the scriptures have said. So now he's putting some, some meat behind what he's saying. He's putting some proof behind it. He's saying, hey, you may find this objectionable, but listen, the scriptures say rivers of living water will flow from within them. Now, the context here is incredible. The context is that the first found in the first few verses of this chapter 
And in the first few verses of chapter 7, it tells us that this was the Feast of Tabernacles. It was one of the three major festivals at the center of life, community, and faith for these people. This celebration acted out the experience of their ancestors who had lived for 40 years in the desert with nothing but their trust and their hope in God. So, and for, for, the, for, for the 40 years that they lived in the desert, the people lived in temporary shelters, tents, or tabernacles, which is why it's called the Feast of Tabernacles. So throughout the years, the traditions and ceremonies developed as a part of this celebration. So just like any parade we have or any celebration we have or anything we do, I always think of this the kind of the way that we think about Christmas, right? Every year, it seems like there's some kind of new tradition added on to Christmas. And then we say, oh, that makes it Christmas, right? We have all these celebrations like that. These things that without that would seemingly make it not quite the same. And it's weird because we get in our modern context that has really shifted a lot. So just a, just a you know a hundred years ago, the idea of a Christmas tree was a brand new idea that that had really begun to develop in a certain way, and everybody had started to use them. And it, it was it was a smaller thing that then became a larger thing as it began to travel and spread to different people. Right? You can't imagine it without Christmas tree. You can't even fathom it. Right? Some people would say, well, it's not Christmas without Home Alone or Elf or the Mariah Carey song that nobody wants to mention because nobody wants to start singing it and have it stuck in their heads all day. Right? This, but there's something about it that you go, but without that, how could it possibly be Christmas? And maybe in a hundred years, people were like, how could you not watch Home Alone? That's part of Christmas tradition, right? That's what people do. Well, the same thing is true here at a much deeper level. As people celebrated this incredible, amazing festival, this idea of the Feast of the Tabernacles. They had all this trust and hope in God that this was at the center of their faith. And so as they began to act it out, they began to live out the reality of this. And so what they would do is they would build these tents. They would build these tabernacles at the side of the road. They would live in these tabernacles for the week just like their ancestors did. And then what would happen was that they would have all these celebrations as a part of this festival. And one of the biggest parts of that celebration was what was called the water drawing ceremony. Now during the ceremony, it happened on certain days, a parade of worshipers, which was led by a temple priest, would walk through the city to a pool called the Pool of Siloam. The priest would fill a pitcher with water from this, from this pool of water. Then the whole procession would return to the temple through what was called the water gate. A trumpet sounded as the priest entered the temple area. He would approach the altar and he would take this water that he had, he had brought from the pool and he would pour it onto the altar. And as the water flowed over the altar, it reminded everyone of the water that God had miraculously provided in the desert. And people would go crazy. I mean, there would just be cheering. There would just be, be music and singing, dancing, because this was the highlight experience, the highlight moment, remembering that God had provided, that our trust and our hope can be found in Him. 
He is where our salvation is found. And as that water poured out, they were reminded he provided for these people. He will continue to provide for us. In Isaiah 12, we read a passage that, that this ceremony refers to, that connects to, that people would have had in their minds as this is happening. It says, Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord, the Lord himself is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. So as Jesus stood in the temple watching this pageantry taking place, the priest walking through the water gate, standing at the altar, ready to pour the water into the basin, Jesus suddenly yelled out in a loud voice. So just imagine the moment with me. Imagine in that very moment the water pouring and Jesus interrupting, yelling out for everyone to hear, making clear his connection to this idea. That in him is salvation. In him is hope. In him is where you find trust. In him is fulfilled the promises of God. That life would be found in him. And that through Jesus, we would experience the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Living wells pouring out of our lives. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, has, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. This is a huge promise. It's a promise of salvation and hope. The pouring out of the Holy Spirit. We find another passage, Isaiah 55, that has some similar language. It says, Come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me. Eat what is good and you will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. Incredible. He says in this moment, there are so many things, so many things that you can focus on, so many things that you can worry about, so many things that you can say, this is where my life is found. This is what I aim for. This is what I need. This is what, this is, this, this is what I need over here. And just as Jesus said in some other places, don't worry about those things. God will provide those. But you put your faith and your trust in Jesus. Listen, hear, become a part of the kingdom of God. As it says in other passages, seek first his righteousness and his kingdom. Now this is incredible. Come, all you who are thirsty. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. The scripture says, whoever, whoever believes, living water will flow from within them. And this brings us back to this woman at the well. The woman probably knew about this water drawing ceremony. Jews and Samaritans had the same heritage, 
some of the same stories. They had, they had the, same, um, the same faith and the same understandings. They, they, had, they, they were a similar people. But because this woman was Samaritan, she couldn't worship in Jerusalem. She would never experience the ritual of the pouring out of living water. I don't want you to miss this. She couldn't go and be a part of the ceremony. So Jesus brought the ceremony to her. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And what we talk about there is this idea of what he's saying, that the Holy Spirit will live within them, will spring forth from them, and from them will come things of the eternal. Now, we talked about this in our How to Pray series. We talked about the kingdom of God as we talked about praying for his will. What is his will? His love, his grace, his mercy, his justice. That we reflect his goodness, his mercy, his grace, his love back onto this world through the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The eternal becomes a part of this moment here and now. And so that's what Jesus is saying here. He says, you will experience the eternal in this moment in the here and now. The real, eternal goodness, the eternal love, the eternal grace, the mercy of God will come and be present in this moment here and now. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He brings that ceremony and what he's going to say there, and he brings it to her first. Again, look what Jesus did. Jesus would go from here. He would share this truth of living water with a huge crowd gathered in Jerusalem. But he began this teaching with this one woman who didn't belong, whose life was filled with shame. I want you to see how important that is. He, he didn't begin with this huge crowd. He didn't first go there and then say, oh, well, now that I have time, let me go and extend the invitation to others. He began by extending the invitation that nobody was going to extend the invitation to. And he says, the road of grace is wide, and I am extending this invitation to you before I share it with others. Regardless of your shame, regardless of your story, this is for you you. He wanted her to experience the living water only he could provide. And I want you to see what happens next. I'm fascinated by the, the rest of this conversation, what we, can first, uh, what we can learn from it. But let's first start with her response, which shows that she wasn't exactly, she still, she still wasn't sure exactly what he meant, but she was intrigued. Listen to this. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Now, from this moment, Jesus began to talk about her life. He began to talk about the source of her shame within her community. And then what's really fascinating here is that she changed the subject. 
she ends up punting to another area of debate. And she begins to talk about, oh, well, you worship here, we worship here. She just absolutely changes the subject on Jesus. And I think this is fascinating because I think this is what happens to us over and over again. As we begin to nudge and lean forward and begin to lean into this idea of belief, as we experience the way of Jesus, we begin to, uh, we find that this relationship is going to have an impact and a change on our lives. And if it gets too personal, if it messes with parts of our lives that we want left alone, we begin to shift the focus to something else. And that's what happens here. He begins to give her this invitation. She becomes intrigued at it. She begins to lean in. But she begins to see that, oh, this is going to have an impact on my life. Jesus is going to change my life. I don't know that I'm ready to give up this stuff. I don't know that I'm ready to hand that over. So she begins to pause. Well, what about this over here? I'll change the subject to this over here. I'm going to change the subject to this over here. We all do that. Jesus begins to work in our life. We begin to see these things that need to change, these boxes that we begin to place our life in. We say, well, here's the faith box, but here's the work box, and here's the family box, and here's the fun box, and here's all these things that I have that are for me, and I don't want Jesus to mess with, so I'm just going to change the subject to something else because I really don't want Jesus messing with any of this stuff over here. This is my stuff. And I love what happens here. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And this seems odd, but in the context of the conversation, the woman was saying, well, everything's just a mystery. We'll just wait it out. And she's sort of ending the conversation. She goes, well, you know what? Uh, Everything will make sense in the end. Uh, Maybe this wasn't really worth it. I I don't know that I really want to lean into this. And then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. So it comes to this moment where she's saying, well, I'll just change the subject. We'll just wait for the Messiah. (laughs) Jesus looks and says, listen, I am the Messiah. There are times for doubts, questions, uncertainties. But there also comes a time when we clearly see that Jesus is Lord. And that moment changes everything about our lives. And it means that we empty those boxes. And we just put it all before Jesus. We say, all of this is yours. All of this. You have dominion. You are Lord over all of this. And we release our lives to him. Now listen. Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Now, did you notice what she left behind? She left one of her most important possessions, her water jar. Whatever she was trying to find didn't matter anymore. She discovered something so much better than the well she was sitting at and the life that she had been living. She stopped worrying about her shame. She didn't care what time it was. She didn't care about the guilt of her past. She had found the Messiah. She had found Jesus. And he promised that her life would never be the same again. And rather than sitting there contemplating what that meant, rather than worrying about the water that she had come to get, Rather than worrying about the shame that caused her to come there in the middle of the hot day, 
She takes that bucket, she takes that, she just drops it on the ground and she goes. And this is what it looks like for us. That we're holding on to this stuff that we think is going to bring us life. And when we encounter Jesus and we are invited to believe, we drop that stuff and say, I'm in. And we share it with others. I love what happens here. I love how this takes place. The outcast woman became the biggest evangelist in her town. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now don't miss this. This is what's so critical here. I will never have the ability to talk to everybody that you know and share Jesus with them. But sometimes in the church, what we do, we flip it around and we sort of think, well, the the church is responsible to tell people about Jesus when the reality is in scripture, we find that each one of us is commanded to tell people about Jesus, to share our lives, to share what we call our testimony with others, to be so excited how we, we dropped everything, gave it all to Jesus. Something happens within us and causes us to say, I want you to experience the love and the grace and the mercy of Jesus that I have experienced as well. And we drop everything. We drop shame. We drop, we drop all the stuff that we're holding on to. We say, I want you to hear about Jesus. And then as they, from you, experience Jesus for themselves, they begin to say, I don't know, I don't believe just because of what you told me. But your invitation led me to Jesus, and now I know that he is the Savior of the world and the Savior of my life. So the questions I have for you is, has Jesus changed your life? Have you given up all the things that you thought could satisfy you? Have you discovered that all that stuff pales in comparison to knowing Jesus? Simply put, what are you holding on to today that is keeping you from your relationship with Jesus? Keeping you from believing. And I don't mean this for people who are new to church or new to faith. I'm talking about everybody. All of us at times have a way of picking up stuff that we've left on the ground and saying, well, I'll take some of that back now. This relationship's getting a little too personal again. We all have a tendency to do that. We all need to drop that. What is it for you that you're holding on to that you need to drop? When we encounter Jesus, we're invited to believe. No matter our story, our shame, the past that holds us back, we experience Jesus, we experience change. We drop all that we thought we were after and run to tell others about his amazing grace, mercy, and love. So what are you holding on to? What are you holding on to? Is it your fear? Is it some shame? Is it your stuff? Is it just wanting to be in control? Just drop it and experience the life-transforming power of Jesus. Allow the Holy Spirit to work in and through your life so you can share his goodness and his mercy and grace with others. Let's pray. 
God, we are thankful for the story that shows that Jesus comes to each and every one of us, challenges us to believe and to share, to drop what we're holding on to, and to go and tell others of the Messiah. Father, we thank you for this, and we ask that you would challenge us, lead us, help us to, to follow you with everything. It's your name that we pray. Amen.